Hello listener, it's the host of Campbell's Football's Grant Campbell here, with a message to every one of you listening to this podcast. Please keep safe during this very stressful time with the outbreak of coronavirus affecting not just football, but our everyday lives. Make sure your friends and family are safe during this very stressful time for many of us, not just physically, but mentally too. But Campbell's Footballs will still be producing podcasts. However, there will be very few predictions because obviously there's not much football going on at the moment. I have a few in-conversation specials though, which I'm sure you would love to listen to. But at the end of the day, please make sure that you look after yourselves. Take the time to listen to the show in your own home, with friends and family. And remember that we are all in this together. So take care, be safe, and I'll see you soon. Well, welcome back, listener, to the Campbell's Footballs podcast. I am joined for this episode uh, by former Dundee goalkeeper and Aberdeen, of course, Derek Suter. Derek, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invite. It's a pleasure to join you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you keeping with this coronavirus shutdown, first and foremost? I'm trying to keep myself sane. I'm doing a bit of work from home. I'm just I'm missing being out being able to coach. That, that's the biggest downfall for me is just not being able to get out and do a bit of coaching. Yeah. So I've been taking that out on the kids in the garden, putting them through some physical and technical sessions. Yeah, I've noticed that from your social media. You've been putting them through some goalkeeper training, which has uh, certainly got a lot of people's attention. Yeah, and, and there's loads of people jumping on the back, which is great. But what I do is that the sessions I put the kids through, I put that in a Mon Academy um, yeah. just to keep the kids that are, you know, join the academy. I put them the same sessions to them, so it helps the parents, it helps the kids just keeping active. Anything that's positive for them to be active through this is, is great. Do you think more kids should get into coaching? We'll, we'll obviously talk a little bit more about this in depth, but do you think more kids should take up football coaching in places like yourself? I think so. Yeah, definitely. When when I was when I was playing, you know, it was just solely focused on playing. You never ever thought of outside the game in terms of what you're going to do when you finish. I think there should be more emphasis on while you're playing is going and doing badges, and the more badges you get and the more qualifications, the better it's going to help you. Whether whether you play professional, junior, amateur, doesn't matter what standard of football you're playing. If you can get into that side of it, you know, some of the best coaches in the world yeah. didn't play the. You know, and I think it's a great aspect because what it does, it keeps you active within the game right the way throughout your years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look into that a little bit at the towards the end of this podcast, Derek. But I'm really interested to learn about your own footballing career and you know the journey that kind of uh, entailed throughout that. So, my first question to you is: What made you want to get into football in the first place? I think I just loved playing on it. I used to go and watch Dundee when I was a wee kid. Um, and then my dad was really pally with a few players that moved on uh, one was John Brown he went to Rangers so watching Dundee and then watching Rangers on a Saturday I just loved the aspect of running about daft I used to play at field funny enough um, but every Saturday night I used to come and play on the grass outside my house till about 11, 12 o'clock on a Saturday night but for some reason I always wanted to play in goal yeah. um, 
I was always on goalie strips. I just loved diving about, like diving about in the mud. And I think it just went from there. It was just something that I just fell in love with some, from such a young uh, a young age. Yeah. Who were your idols and inspirations growing up? I'm obviously thinking about goalkeepers specifically for yourself, but were there any other people, either at Dundee or Rangers or your personal life that really inspired you? You know, I loved, I was so lucky and so privileged that I worked with Jim Leighton for so many years. Um, and he, he was an idol of mine growing up, as was Andy Gorham. Um, you know, I was mentioning to him on Facebook today, and he's some character. So to watch these guys and try and emulate what they did in their careers, it's very difficult. But if you can even follow, you know, a couple of steps that they do, it's just incredible. And I've been privileged enough to do that. Yeah, I, I, I've uh, as an Aberdeen fan myself. I mean, the first thing I always remember of is is Jim and one of my first <laughs> Aberdeen games. <laughs> what was that? Sorry. <laughs> Queen of the South, come on, that's, yeah. that's picking on me. <laughs> that is harsh, I know that's true. But, but Jim is Jim's a guy who, the, 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 my first memory of Jim was, I, I went to an Aberdeen game with my with my dad and my, my late grandfather who sadly passed away last year, and I already were playing St Johnston, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, I think with Callum McFadden, if, you have, if people are listening to that, might want to listen to that one back. But uh, Aberdeen won the game 2-1, and one of the memories I have of that game is Jim Jim just clearing the ball straight over the main stand, and me just turning around and saying, are they going to get the ball back or something? Because <laughs> I, I thought it was known to be the ball been, boys were going to go. <laughs> That would have been Jim's goal kick. That wasn't a clearance. That was his goal kick. He was that bad. He's not got. He's not got the straightest of legs in the world. So yeah. Class- keep it inside the stadium well. Class goalkeeper though. Ah, oh, yeah. Do you know what? He's an absolute gem. He's been such an influence in me as a footballer, but also personally as well. Mm. Jim was one of these guys that you know. Yes, he was your coach, but he was always on the phone for anything, any bit of advice and I still keep in touch with him to this day, him and mm. him and his wife Diane. Yeah. Lovely, lovely couple. Um and he's just a genuinely nice guy and you don't get many of them in football. Yeah. And I'll be honest with that. No, absolutely. Talk to me about how you started your career because obviously playing for your for your hometown club Dundee, how did that come about? I was playing boys club and um I was just I was fortunate enough that every time I performed well it was always against the better teams and the better teams always had the scouts at the games. Um, and I started off with Brecon when I was about 14, 15 training with them, training with their first team goalies which which was great and Stevie Campbell was a player at the time at Brecon and he was actually a coach at Dundee as well and he was the one that spotted me Yeah, got scouts to come and watch me and fortunately for me when I was 16 I signed for Dundee as a full time professional Yeah, um, I, I wasn't great at school I'll be honest um, I used to <laughs> I used to just look out the window waiting on PE or look out the window waiting on the break time because school was the my thing um, so I was lucky enough when I was 16 I got to go full time with Dundee which was just an unbelievable experience yeah who were the characters at Dundee when you were breaking through because you know around about that time I, I automatically think of you know the Bonettis when they were on the go because that was when Dundee had players like Ravinelli and Caballero and Canicia in the team yeah. Yeah, well, when I first joined, you had yeah, it was Jockey Scott was the manager, um, and they'd just been promoted to I think it was a, I can't it was first division into the top league or whatever it was. I can't mind the leagues how they were named back then. Um, but I got instantly had a connection with Big Rab Douglas, who I still keep in touch with now. Um, and you had like Sir James Grady, Eddie Ann, and Dave Rogers. What what a character! The guy's just bonkers, absolutely off the scale. Yeah. Um, 
and I mind, and I mind. Dave, Dave was always one of these. He was sharp off the, he was sharp off the blocks. He was unbelievable. His part, and we were driving down Edinburgh. Um, we'd been at a game. I think it was against Hibs or Hearts. We played. We were in the minibus. Dundee, Dundee plastered down the side. So it comes to the traffic lights and driving along. And Dave shouts to this guy on the bike. Excuse me, mate. You've, you've dropped something. So he the boy jumps off his bike and he's checking his pockets. He's opening his rucksack, checking his rucksack and everything. So we're all crease laughing, going down the, the, the road. Stopped at the next traffic lights. So the boy comes up, chaps on the window. And he says, how are you, you scouse? He, he says, I've maybe dropped something. I've not dropped as many points as Dundee this year. Get off, you know. <laughs> Dave Rogers silent. It was absolutely classic. It was. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Talk to me about Jockey Scott because you know he was another influential character in the the Scottish footballing game at that time. Yeah, Jockey's Jockey's a man of few words, um, but he ju- he's got this aura. You just know that when Jockey walks in a room, you just instantly switch on. You connect with him and you just listen because his experiences. His knowledge of football is incredible. Mm. And he doesn't have to say too much. If you're having a bad game, you walk in the changing room, you know you're having a bad game. You know jockeys copped you. Mm-hmm. But see if you take on board of his advice, no bother. And jockey, jockey was brought for me from a very young age. And I think a few times at Dundee, he was very, very unfairly treated. Yes. Um, the second time round I was there, there were, oh God, I think we were a good, but 10 points ahead, 15 points ahead of Inverness. Um, and then they started pulling it back. We went through a bad run, as everybody does. But Jockey was unfairly sacked by Carl Melville at the time. And they brought in Gordon Chisholm and Dodsey. Um, and it went downhill from there. But I think Jockey, for the knocks he's taken, mm. the success he had in the game overrides that. And I think he's just, a, again, he's one of these gentlemen within the game and guys that you have to respect. Was he one of those guys that was very much involved at the coaching and the training side of things? Yeah, Jockey's old school. Jockey's old, old, old school. Um, you know, he's swanning down the training ground with the trackie on, Puma King 1940 boots on, and it just <laughs> was. And he was, and we used to play um, on a Thursday or a Friday, we used to play little games, small sided games. Jockey would get involved. Yeah. And it was Britain, it wasn't done as it. But I built the respect up for the squad. Yeah. Because he was, you know, I don't know what age he was then, he was maybe, what, 93, 94, and he was still getting involved, and he was absolutely class. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned you mentioned Rob Douglas earlier on. What was he like in his in your relationship? Because, you know, as a guy who was runner-up in the UEFA Cup final and had a fabulous career, obviously, with Celtic as well as Dundee, you know, you must have taken so much uh, influence and words from himself. Yeah, he, he's, he's such a, um, back then, he's such a role model for me. Just because Big Rab's quite grounded in terms of, he, he, come, he worked on a building site and he played part-time football, so he's seen the other side of the game. Mm. Not a lot of people see that, and I think that then gave him a foundation to be as successful as he was. Yeah. He, he's an absolute brute and unit of a guy. You know, he's one of these guys you just don't mess with. But I was actually his boot boy. <laughs> and, you know, and he was great because he'd another one that I could go to for any advice. Um, if I had to work on someone, he would tell you. If he did something wrong, <laughs> he would tell you. Yeah, absolutely. You know? absolutely. Um, but he, he, was, he was a big influence on my career back then because of the success. He, I think his success was very, very quickly and happening in terms of where he came from. It just happened so quickly that Dundee rightly got his move to Celtic. Um, and his and his Scotland career as well, and I used to look up to the big man, yeah, um, because he, he was he was just he's just one of these guys that 
was very humble um, in terms of his success he had. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the other players that you were uh, involved in that time at Dundee, because as I mentioned earlier on, you know the, the kind of Argentinian cohort were sort of coming in around about that time. Your Canigias, your Caballeros, yeah. your Saras, and that. What was that like? Because I imagine the transition and the interaction with these players must have been quite tough, wasn't it? Uh, it was to start with. Um, we'd, we were we were actually over in Magaluf um, on an end of season piss up, and we'd, we'd got a phone call. We'd hit over two back on on the Tuesday night, um, and the, f- the flight got in at say three four in the morning. So we were all we were told we got a phone call saying right the Benetis are joining on the Wednesdays. They all have to be in on the Wednesday morning at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So we flew flew into Glasgow, into the three or four up the road, couple of hours sleep, been on the piss for two weeks. So we're in the tens and we meet the new manager and we're thinking, oh God, you know, this is just going to be horrendous. It started off very, very good. It was very structured. Um, they had an interpreter with them, and, but it was very, very sort of English-spoken and foreign people. Mm. So, you know, that, that's the way it was. There was a massive, massive divide um, that, you know, Barry Smith and Gavin Ray, they handled that very well because yeah. they then started in- integrating themselves within the foreign contingent. Yeah. Yeah, but see, when I, I still speak to them, some of them now, um, Fabian Caballero, um, Juan, uh, Juan Sara, Artero, Artero, uh, Georgi Menzadzi and stuff. Lovely, lovely guys, you know. Yeah. And after a while, these guys were unbelievably talented players. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it was unfortunate that Peter Mar. Um, when he was in charge of Dundee you could see what his vision was was to get these players in for nothing and sell them on for a profit and that's you know unfortunately it didn't work out you know there was one you'll probably know where your stats and stuff there was a Celtic game Celtic played I think it was Bratislava and if they'd have scored in the last minute it was sutting their hearts and headed into the side netting yes if that had been in Celtic would have qualified for the Champions League group stages yes and Georgie Nemzadzi, he was actually going to be signing for Celtic in a million pound deal that next day. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So I'm going in on Thursday and, and we, Georgie was sitting crying and I used to call him Boxhead. He's got the squarest, biggest head you'll ever see. <laughs> um, so I said, Boxhead, what's up with you? Ah, oh, no, no, leave me, leave me, leave me. So I went back and spoke to him and he said, he, was, he told me the story himself. He says, today... I was going to Celtic Park to sign for a million pound. Blimey, crumbs. Absolutely. He must <laughs> cost him a million pound move. Probably never forgave Gordon Strachan ever since. <laughs> which is quite funny because obviously Gordon's working at Dundee now, which is quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. But Dundee was very surreal because of the players they were bringing in. Well, Ravinelli um, was there at the time. I mean, when I think of Ravinelli, I think of Gazetta Football Italia. I think of his time at Juventus with Viale and, you know, his time at Middlesbrough. Yeah. I mean, what a player. He was just, it was very, very, very surreal. And I had a wee thing with Ravinelli, but we used to do a bit of shooting on a Thursday. Right. And if he's, like, if I saved it, which wasn't very often, um, if I saved it, I'd put my top up over my head and run about like he did. And he, if he scored, he'd put his top over his head and run. Just because it was a bad banter and he was a lovely guy, lovely, yeah. lovely, nice guy. Yeah. Um, and then we had like to him, and and then Kanija came in, and the rumours for Kanija coming in were just this was like off the scale by then, you know. Um, and we were training at a place in Dundee called the Michelin. Mm. So where we we used to change up the hill, and then you would walk down the hill to to get to the pitch side. So we were all on the pitch, and it was about no exaggeration, it must have been about thirty press guys there. Um, 
all ready with their cameras, video cameras and that. And we're like, lads, lads, you've been done up here a kipper. He's never, ever shown. Yeah. Half an hour later, this figure stands up on the top of the hill, the dread, you know, the big long hair, the locks, the whole thing. And we were, it was just, everybody was starstruck. Yeah. Even the manager, you know, the manager standing there, having to have a clue what's going on here, yeah. you know. Yeah. But again, this guy's a World Cup legend. He's an icon in football and... You'll never meet a nicer guy. He used to stop you in the street. He would come to speak to you in the street. You know, he'd yeah. have time of day for every single person. He was, yeah. a, he was a gem. Yeah, and Kenichi was brilliant at, at Rangers as well, wasn't he? At the time he was there. Yeah, but he's one of these guys that he was like he was he, he was um he was so fat for his age. He, you know, he, he was at the latter part of his, his career when he was at Dundee and Rangers, but he was so so fat. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> The guys, the guys used to stand in the changing room. So the Scottish guys, beer bellies and all that, hairy beer bellies, white bellies. And they used to keep their kit on before he got out because he was so tanned, he was ripped solid. Yeah. You know, sick, that whole thing. And we were saying, ah, we'll wait till he's out of there because we'll know how to show ourselves up here, you know? <laughs> and he kept proving his wrong quite brilliant. <laughs> talk, talk, to me, talk to me about the training uh, differences between Jockey Scott and the Bonettis because you obviously said it was very um, hardcore under. Uh, under Jockey Scott, and it was very different under the Benes, was it? Seems to be. Yeah, yeah. Jock, Jockey was brilliant because it was so structured every week. You knew what you were doing. You knew you were back then. It was different because we didn't have fights with your sports scientists and all that type of thing, right? The games moved on since then. So we used to like Monday, Tuesday, you would train quite intense. Off Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, prep for the game, and a very similar Aberdeen as well. Mm. Then you were off on a Sunday. Yeah. Whereas the Italians came in and they promised we well, were going to do this and fitness coach and the fitness coach used to sit and have a beer and a fag after training. <laughs> you know what I mean? What's going on here? But the Italians were a believer that you trained when you played. Yes. As like Guardiola does it with Man City just now. So if we trained, if we played at three, all week we would train at three o'clock. If we had a midweek game at night, we would train at night. Yeah. That's, that's the way they worked it. Which kind of was, it was good in a way, but it was it was a downfall as well. Before I say a downfall, it was brilliant at the time, but we're young guys. So you would train on a Monday, 3 o'clock, mm-hmm. Tuesday, or off a Wednesday. Yeah. So when you play on a Saturday, you went until 3 o'clock on a Monday, so around Saturday night, Sunday night, train Monday, out Monday night, train Tuesday at 3 o'clock, out Tuesday night, and then we're off Wednesday. So you're out four nights in the nightclubs out of the week, <laughs> and it was unbelievable. Yeah. That would be great, great at the time. Um, but their training, it was all right. It was okay. Um, it was more tactical than anything. Mm. Um, That's what Gavin told me in a previous podcast. It was quite tactical. Yeah, it was It was very, there was a lot of sort of um, formation lineups and that type of thing. And, it, for, and for players doing that, it's, but I like jockeys. Jockeys was just bang, and, and it was very intense, high intensity. And it was all short, sharp stuff, yeah. and it was brilliant. Yeah, talk to me about the the people in the dressing room. Who were the real characters? I reckon you're one of them. <laughs> was there any other people in the in the dressing room that were characters? Um, there was a few. As time went on, you know, you had well, Bigley Wilkie. He was he was as daft as they come. Um, absolutely daft as they come. We and Anderson as well. Uh, we 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 Ando was just a he was a dirty dirty guy. Right, just filth. Absolutely just filth And he'll admit it There was one time There was one of the young boys um, A guy called Neil Jablonski mm-hmm. And he was on like Apprentice wages So about 65 quid 70 quid a week And the boys had a night out in Glasgow That weekend But nearly couldn't 
he can go because he was skint. <laughs> so what happened? Well, we whipped out. He done a whip round. He says, like, you got fivers, tenors, 20 quids off the guy. So it was about 200 odd pound in the pot. Yeah. So what they done was they got wee Ando to shave his legs and uh, other parts of his body. <laughs> as we and what they done was they put it, they sprinkled it on a, a tuna baguette and says to the the look, if you eat that, then there's your 200 odd quid and you're good for the weekend. And I tell you what, if you could see, Neil, Neil had about three top teeth, right? So when he was eating it, all the hairs were coming out his teeth and everything. Oh, what the lap, right? Oh. So he ate that, he's videoing everything, and uh, he ate it, and then the next thing, woof, that'll be calm, just spewed everywhere. Oh, Jesus. But he got his pound, and he was on the night out. Uh, I bet he was the same state at the night out, was he? At the night out, aye, but no, Lee Volkey was good. You had to watch him, because he was a sneaky sort. He was yeah. funny size, he was a sneaky little person, like, you know, he was... He was always in and about stuff. Yeah. Well, what, what, uh, were the nights out very similar to the dressing room? Where, where was Lee and people like yourself the ones that were the the ones that were always looking after people and always having good crack? Or well, who were the ones? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. They'd always they'd always be the same faces um, and they're having a good laugh and stuff like that. Um, but it was the same squads that we used to always go. Out. We used to go about you know every the night out because back then you would go out on a Saturday night after the game. Back then. There would be about there would maybe be a squad of about 10, 15 of us, mm. and it was brilliant. We were all got in great, and we were all like going for a game of snooker or pool after training, golf, golfing, and we did. We spent a lot of time with us mm. with each other, like, and it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Do you think that's lost now in the current footballing regime, so to speak? That that sort of societal cultural embeddiment. Definitely, definitely. But like you know, on a Friday it was myself, Gabri. Um, Lee Mayer, Jamie Langfield, maybe Brad Douglas sometimes, but when he was there, we all used to go into town, grab a bite tea for lunch, and go for a coffee and a cake and that, right? And that's what we used to do. But you don't get that nowadays. Yeah. You don't get that. You know, it's, 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 the game has completely flipped and changed. For the worse, would you say? Um, I wouldn't say for the, maybe not for the worse. I just think the game's evolved a lot more. It's mm. more to do with, Lifestyles and that type of thing, you know. Yeah. Like you, you, you used to batter yourself in training Monday to Friday, play a Saturday. Your Saturday night was then free because you were off on a Sunday. The boys would love that. Yeah. Nothing better than if you're a, see if you're um, at home or at an away game and you're travelling back up the road after a victory, mm. and you know you've got a night out with the boys. There's not much a better feeling than that. Absolutely. It was brilliant because it just. It just ended that week on a high for you. Yeah, absolutely. What about the bus journeys? Because obviously Dundee would have had a few great uh, away days, I'm sure. There was, yeah, there was. There was a cracker um, end of the season. We'd played, we'd finished fifth. And um, I don't know if Gavray told you this when he was on the podcast, and I'll tell you anyway. So we were playing, and um, we were playing hearts away at Tynecastle. And, and uh, Gov wasn't even stripped. He'd, he'd be good. He'd, I think he played so many games for the season and stuff like that, and he was unbelievable that year. So the gaffer says to him, right, travel, but you know, that's fine, just you're not stripped. So Gav had gone out on the Friday night on the lash. So we're on the bus, I'm just to the game, and I'm saying, like, Gav, you're stinking the drink. So anyway, we start getting changed for the game, out on the pitch for the warm up, and Gav says to me, look, I'm going to go around and go for a pint at the clubby. Yeah. Must have been about 20 minutes into warm up. The gaffer says to me, he, says, he used to call me Soppy, not Soapy, Soppy. Say, Soppy, Gavin. I'm like, oh no. 
And she said, Gavin's away. Go and get him. I knew he'd go to the So I'm having to get somebody to phone Gav. So Gav comes rushing in, strip on, into the warm-up. So we're, we're warming up and we're all... I think it was... Um, before the game or whatever we're all having a competition with the boys are away in and we're saying right, hit that top corner hit that top corner so Gov's hit this thing right round the corner round the post smashes this woman right in the face with her glasses poof off the come let her complain at the club <laughs> so as the game goes on the game starts we're sitting there and I'm saying Gav you are stinking a drink here and about 20 25 minutes into the game somebody pulls up injured Gavin, you're going on, you're going on. Oh, girls. And I kid you, the guy, the guy was an absolute machine. He went on that park, having been out on a Friday night, had a couple before the game, and absolutely cruised the game. I think yeah. we drew one all, nil nil or one all for it. So we jumps on the bus after the game, and uh, Georgie and him's Adzi box said he, he's sitting at the back of the bus, and you know like the cartoon characters when the eyes are bright red and they pop out the head. Georgie, you are right. He'd been drinking 45% vodka straight from Russia. Bang, bang, bang. Honestly, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, brilliant. The bus was absolutely bouncing, but that was us on the last day of the season. It was class. Brilliant. Great times. Superb, superb. You had a few loan spells as well at Brecon and Alawa. I mean, what's it like to be a loan player at a club away from your parent club at that time? I loved it. Um, it was a bit surreal at first because I was, a, I think I was 18 years old. I think it was the making of me to be honest because when you're in an environment and you're very comfortable you're training every week and you're, you're well looked after you're spoiled you play you know youth team football there's not really any pressures or hassles of that mm. um, but when you get put in an environment my first club was breaking Dick Campbell took me and I was thrown in straight away and I like I grew up I grew up like oh, I say I've never grown up but I, I, I matured totally um, because you have to This is these guys' livelihood These guys yeah. are out working Monday to Friday Some of them are doing night shifts And then turning up for a game Yeah And if you're, if you're not performing They boys will let you know about it Absolutely But I love the, I love the clubs the club, I think I was very lucky But I went to Brecon And I went to Arla Which were two fantastic run clubs Very family orientated as well Yeah And I think that Because when, At those times I, That's when I started Getting involved in International setup. up mm. Because at my age, I was playing a lot of league football. Yeah. And, and it was excellent. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. To be called up to the under-21s, as you... This is an excellent point to mention this. In an under-21 level, what, a, what an honour that must have been for yourself. Yeah, it was. And I, I kind of get goosebumps thinking about it because I, I played with, um, with the hell of a run that year. What a squad we had. We had um, McFadden, Dan Fletcher... Uh, Gary Cole was there, Stephen Craney, Maloney, um, Kevin Kyle. Honestly, the squad we had was just incredible. And at that time, because I was playing, I was playing ahead of Craig Gordon and Alan McGregor. Mark. Because they two were still playing reserve football or youth football yeah. because I was playing in the league. Yeah. So I played the whole campaign. Unfortunately, I got injured. Um, I thought I broke my leg just two days before we played Croatia in the playoffs. So okay. Craigie Gordon. Craigie Gordon got his breakthrough which I still claim to say that I've now set him up on his career because <laughs> um, he's bloody shown so he's never looked back since he got yeah, in there I know. Um, but it, it was such a, um, it was such an honour um, and then from there I was I was lucky enough I got called into the this full squad once against Germany at Hamden mm-hmm. um, I didn't get stripped there's third, third choice goal there and I played against the Germans in the B team you know, and I look back, and then you just take it for granted, but now I look back at the squad, 
that we played against. Yeah. And I'm seeing these guys playing for Germany now, and it's just, it's a bit surreal, yeah. eh? Who was in that German B squad, if you remember, around about that time? Um, you had Hitzelsberger. Oh. He was Aston Villa. Um, Steiger was there. Um, oh, God, honestly, I, I need to go through, but the, the names just... That's the two names that spring to mind. Wow. Um, Schweinsteiger, what a player, and obviously a, a World Cup winner as well. World Cup winner, you know, and I'm and like, I've got, uh, when I used to, when I was out of contract, I sent DVDs to different clubs, and, and my young lad found it the other week. And he was like, Dad, who's, who's that? And I'm going, that's Schweinsteiger. And, oh my God. Look. To them, it meant more because they are seeing it. Yeah. To me, you, just, you took it for granted back then. Yeah. And it's great for me to then. See to my kids actually the type of players I played against. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, you talked about Dick Campbell there, Lauren. What's he like? Because I've, I've had a few people on Danny Denham and a couple of others in the past who said that Dick's an absolute character of the game, and you don't get many of them these days. He's not, uh, Dick's a bit like Jockey, right? They're, they're from that same sort of era and old, old, old school. But Dick's as mad as they come. Absolutely as mad. Dick could walk in a changing room for a game. I remember one game at Air, and he never even. Named the team. He just he he come away with a story. The whole place was in an uproar, and then he just went right. There's your team, guys. Bam, bam, out we went. I think we won two 0 away to Air United. He didn't have to do a team talk. He didn't have to give you instructions. He just knew how to play for yeah. that. Yeah. You know, he he, well, he was he's just as mad as they come. And any story here about him will be true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I saw I, I saw his interview with Simon Ferry. I mean, that was an absolutely superb podcast. And you know, he just comes across as just a loving guy and a guy who just wants to be successful. Ah, he he does put he, like I'm. You know, he recruits very. I think that's one of his um his pluses as a manager. He recruits very very well. Yes. And if he wants a player, he'll do everything in his power to get that player. Yeah, you know, and it's a lot. Of, he, he, when he he signed me twice, there was a lot of personal touches onto that. Yeah, um, you know, and and he went through a period where he had cancer and he was really struggling, and you know, great that he came through it. Um, but yeah, he's just he, he's one of these characters that the players know how to play and they want to play. I think that's what the players wanted to play from. Yeah, you know, um, and he's just he's, he's mad as they come, yeah. absolutely mental. Let's talk about the, the transition to Aberdeen um, because that was at a time where Aberdeen were under Jimmy Calderwood. They were they were making a bit of a resurgence. They were touching the European success. What was it like to play under Jimmy? Um, I, it was a bit up and down for myself to be honest. Um, when I signed when I signed for Aberdeen, I, 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 I don't think when I signed I realised how big a club they were. Um, that's that's a, like a compliment to the club. It was Jim Layton that, and, you know, it was him that he chased and chased and chased me. I was at Dundee and because of when we were talking about the Benetis and stuff like that, the, the club went through a lot of turmoil financially. Um, and I had another two years on my contract, and the club had says, "Look, we can't off, we can't afford to keep you." Yeah. And I got, and you know, and I signed for Aberdeen, and um, purely simply because Jim Layton was there, and I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to work with Jim on a daily basis. But I don't, you know. In the first year I was there, it was, you know, it was, it was a fantastic club, um, and it was great. The people I worked with, the staff, the the club as a whole was brilliant. Mm. But I don't ever feel I was given a fair crack at it in the first year with Jimmy. Yeah. Um, you know, players were in and out the squad. Our players were in and out the starting eleven, as we'll say. But I was never ever getting given a given a chance. And yeah, we went, you know, we went on a 
fantastic run. I think we finished third that, that third that year, got into the Europe League the next year, mm. um, which was just bizarre. It was surreal. Yeah. Um, well, I remember that last day because they, they beat Rangers, didn't they, on the last day of the season? Rangers, that, yeah, yeah, and the, the whole place was just bouncing. Yeah, that um, was the Severin screamer from about thirty yards, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that that summer, that's when um, all that happened. With I don't, I still don't know to the ins and outs. I've I've heard bits and pieces about Langfield and Calderwood. Um, so when we went out for pre-season, went to Egypt that year. And, um, I was his number one. But I found out through the, the papers. Mm. And I I told him I says, "Gaffer, am I your number one?" He says, "Oh, you know, probably not be like." I said, well, I'm only asking because you've never, you know, you never told me. And he says, look, get ready pre-season, we'll see you then. So that was it. I started the season, felt I was doing all right. Um, played, I think it was like the first six league games. Done away all right. And then the night before, I can't mind the, the team we played in the, the qualifiers, but the night before the European campaign started, he dropped me. Mm. Um, no notification, no nothing. Right. Jim Layton, Jim Layton never knew. We were in a we were in a team meeting, and he just named his team the day before. And Jim grabbed me out the park, and we were walking around Pitot. I'll never ever forget this. This was the kind of character Jim Layton was. We walked around the pitch two or three times before training, and Jim Layton filled up with tears because he was that hurt and that disappointed for myself. Right. And he's the one that's in tears. Um, and, and then I just got my head down and knuckled in and I got back in the, I was in and out of the team that year mm. but I just never ever feel that I was given and I told Jimmy that a few times you know yeah. and I told him I didn't feel I was getting the fair crack at it and even the players were the same you know the players the players were they didn't understand how yeah. I wasn't getting the fair crack at it yeah talk to me about the relationship you had with Jamie Langfield because at that time you know he was coming through the ranks he was obviously doing very well at Dundee coming to the Aberdeen set up and you know, was that a good Battle between the two of you? Yeah, um, me and Jimmy, me and Jimmy had a very good relationship when I first started with Dundee. Um, we used to pal about the guy, we used to golf, everything like that. But like I said earlier, went to Aberdeen, um, and the, you know the first year was great. Um, all that happened with Jamie, um, you know, I, I, it's one of these things that these things happen. Um, I got my chance. And he, I'll be honest, I'm an honest person. He he, he changed his character, changed mm. um, towards me. When he was playing, he was fine. When I was playing, there was a bit of animosity. You could feel it, and the boys felt it. And the right. boys used to wind them up about it. Yeah. Um, you know, was that because he was that, was that because he cared and because he wanted to be successful as you are? No, I just think there was a jealousy there. If he wasn't playing, then there was a jealousy. That's what I think anyway. Right. Um, and it's, unfo- it's, it's sad, it's unfortunate because, like I say, we were very good pals. Um, and it's one of the ones where I was playing, there was a bit of animosity and, you know, I'd heard a few things through some of the players when I was there that was a bit of backstabbing going on as well. Mm. That's not the way you work. As goalkeepers unions, it's a very unique type of group. Yes. Um, you know, if somebody plays, you push them to the help to, to better them. Uh, likewise, you would expect somebody to push you um, and and that's the way it is, but it's one of these things that happens a lot in football. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, talk to me about your time at Aberdeen and, and the games that you played. The one that sort of springs to my mind is that unfortunate semi-final against Queen of the South, which was <laughs> shown on uh, BBC Scotland Classic matches recently, which I never really want to watch again, but I have to kind of ask this anyway. Um, was that yeah, the lowest you felt in your career? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Just... 
it was such like it was such a bizarre day. Um, you know, we'd taken a, an unbelievable crowd through Hamden. We were all excited. We went through the night before, staying in the hotel. The club, the club are very, very good in terms of the way they prepped you and the way they looked after you. Yeah. Um, there was never any, like nothing was left. It was just all done for you. We're probably pampered too much. Mm. Um, and then we turned up the game, and, and it's one of these ones when you look back now, and you know it's still. When I watched, but well, I watched wee clips of it the other week there, and it's still very, very raw. Mm. And I'm watching that thinking. We'll still win this. We'll still win this. And I'm thinking, ahead, well, <laughs> this was like ten years or twelve years ago. Yes. Um, it's, it was just very for surreal. But then, when you look back at it and, and you get a bit more, bit more older, a bit older and a bit more experienced, that's the beauty of the cup. You know, and, uh, the cup is there, and, and people. There's always one team every year has a fairy tale run, and unfortunately for us, Queens had it that year. Mm-hmm. But I still believe this: that if we'd have beaten Queens that day. We the beating Rangers in the final because Rangers that year were there for the taking. Yes, yes. Do you feel that Queens you are maybe underestimated them a little bit in that semi final? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I think um, there was. I think it was one of these ones where everybody in Scottish football and I with thought we would just go there and turn Queens over and get to the fifth. I thought it was a formality. Yeah. You know, you know yourself in football. That's never the case, but. Do you know what? Like I take my hat off. I I came for the first one, poor punch. Boy scored the lockdown after that. But then, you know, we got back in the game and thought, well, we can go on and win this. And then I think like we just seemed to capitulate all over the pitch. Yeah. You know, everybody just it just capitulated. Then when it was on the other week, there me and Xander Diamond are messaging each other, like discussing the game, and, you know, in depth and. You just think how we lost that game is just yeah. It's well, it's very, you know, it's very rare you see Andy Considine as much as as much as I have I criticise him quite a bit. But he's a, he's an Aberdeen servant through and through. To uh, for him to score twice and still lose, you know, it's quite extraordinary. Fifteen minutes to go, and I remember looking up the scoreboard. It was four all. Of course, it's a four all. Wish it was four all. Four three. And I'm thinking, right, we're fifteen minutes. We'll get back in this. We're all right. We'll you know we'll end up winning five or six four. Just never ever happened, and yeah. you, you know, and it was just one of these surreal days. And then the, even the aftermath of it, what happened the week after, you know, the team meeting and stuff, and <laughs> um, it was just, it was just bedlam. Yeah, talk to me about the Aberdeen players that you played around that era. Who were who were the ones that stood out for you? Um, well, I used to travel with me, me and Lee Miller used to travel up daily on the train. Um, and I think we are the, I think we are to blame for ScotRail putting in barriers at every train station now. <laughs> <laughs> we used to jump we used to jump on the train at Dundee and uh, twenty five past eight train in and then as soon as the guard would come we'd be sleeping. Gets to Aberdeen, jumps off, in at the taxi, but we we think for about four or five months we used to get train journeys to Aberdeen there and back for nothing. And then what happened is Somebody mentioned something and they started putting the barriers in. So what we used to do, we used to get the train from Aberdeen, at Dundee, Aberdeen, jump off at Aberdeen. Oh, we've lost our ticket, we're going to Stonehaven. So you'd only pay a couple of quid a day. We've done this for two years solid. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, Big Lee was a great guy. Absolutely great guy to play with and be, you know, yeah. be around. Um, Xander Diamond, still with him. I still really pally with him. I went away on a, a holiday with him and his mates a few years ago. Um, but we had a very good squad. Russell Anderson, he, he was he was like just a model pro. Yes. Um, you know, just a model model pro. Him and Hartie and Chris Clark, Darren Mackey was 
as daft as a brush as well. Um, the most unconfident. Do you think some of those players never really achieved their full potential? Because I, I look at someone like Darren Mackey and I think, you know, he maybe got a little bit of unwarranted stick because he scored some important goals. He scored some very important goals, and I think because Daz wasn't. He was a bit unorthodox, we'll say. You know, I think because he played with the two feet and. You know, he could do things that other players couldn't do, but you think, well, how did you manage to do that, you know? Mm. Um, and it's just, I think because a lot of these guys were Aberdeen born and bred, mm. and, it, you know, it was a dream to play for the club, and, but they were, they were very, 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 very comfortable within the club. Right. You know, and they maybe didn't know to come out of there and come out of their comfort zone and stuff like that. Because mm. there is, there's players there that could have potentially went down south and played at a higher level. Yes. But they never ever did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, good good boys to be around, you know. Interesting. Let's talk about your time to Ross County because obviously had a, a really good spell at Aberdeen at that time you mentioned there. And moved to Ross County. Um, why that change? Because they're the only ones that would take me at the time. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> yeah, simple as that, yeah. No, when I left Aberdeen, I went on trial at, um, first, where was the first club I went to? The first club I went to was Notts Forest. Right. It was Colin Caldwell was the manager. Okay. And agent had lined up, so they they were very keen. Went down there and I did really well, and they, they said that they had no budget. Right. They, they had to keep one, because at that time they signed Andy Cole. Um, I'm going, I'm, I'm in training before us, so Andy Cole pumps up and you know, I'm, oh, this is just out my out my league here, and then so that was, and I went down to Swansea after that um, with Roberto Martinez, and it was a bit, that was a bit frustrating because he flew me all the way down there. I sat on the bench in a pre-season game, so I played a half a game pre-season, and then he sat me on the bench a full game. I flew back up the road, and he then told me to fly back down myself to play in the game. I thought, well, you could have had an opportunity to look me there. So anyway, that never happened, and then. Hartlepool were top of League One at the time um, under Danny Wilson. Mm. So I'd met them at Largs. Um, they had a training camp up there and they played against Falkirk, played against Morton. They did really well. And I left there on the Friday under the assumption that I agreed a three year contract with them. I was going to be going down on the Monday morning to sign. Um, and my agent phoned me at quarter to nine. I was just about to take the kids to school. My agent phoned me at quarter to nine on the Monday morning. She's like, the deals fell through. Crumb. Because their other the other goalie wouldn't go out on loan to free up wages for me, um, and I was absolutely heartbroken because it was a three year deal, a chance to crack into England. You could have um, met Jeff Stelling. You could have been a, a Hartlepool legend. Unbelievable, Jeff. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't end up at Ross <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when when you when you get disappointment of that not going through, did that affect you mentally? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, that's the first time I thought about chucking football. Really? Um, yeah, it was because I just I had to. I remember going into the house and I had to say to my wife, "I just look because we'd, we'd basically looked at a house and we'd agreed the contract and we'd looked at a house down there and everything." I had to come in and see that the deal's off and, and it was a cracking contract at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was just, I'm saying, is it worth this? Is it worth putting my family yeah. through this every summer where you're fighting to get a new contract somewhere? Yeah. Um, we went up to Ross County and, and it, it was, it's a, Ross County's a great club. Really, Roy McGregor runs that club so efficiently. 
um, and so well, and, it, and it was well looked after up there. Yeah. But I was up there and I was away from the family, so there, yeah. there wasn't that family life balance for me. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that, that's got to be important in a situation like that, 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 that kind of that stability. Yeah, there has to be, yeah, because I was, I was coming back down the road, maybe on a Saturday night, back up Dingwall on a Sunday night, back home on a Tuesday, up and I thought, and it was just, I was here, there and everywhere, and I wasn't seeing the kids growing up properly, and I wasn't spending time with the wife, um, so that, that that was my, one of my main reasons for leaving Ross County, Yeah. Um, to get further back down the road with my family. Yeah. Yeah, talk to me about the latter stages of your career because you, you you went back to Dundee for a little while, didn't you? And then you went away to Cyprus, did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went. Uh, I was at Dundee, um, and I, I just love going back there. And then that was when, like, when I was saying earlier on, Jockey got a raw deal, and Gordon Chisholm came in, and he basically just cleared the decks. And I knew I was going, so I'd signed a two-year deal out in Cyprus, and I'd always wanted to play football. And for me, with my skin colour and hair colour and everything like that. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy, what we would say. Um, so I did a try and get a two-year contract with Dulux Emulsion just as a as a barrier cream. And <laughs> the, the lifestyle out in Cyprus was just sickening and none. It was absolutely there. We went out there in the July, signed a two-year contract, and I got out there. Um, and we used to train at half past six in the morning pre-season because of the heat. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have all day. So every day... Um, the club, the committee were turning up at the, the training ground, um, basically threatening me because I wasn't, they weren't be able to afford my wages. And I wasn't on big money, you know, I was yeah. on a good contract with not huge money. For six weeks, every day and every night, they were turning up at training, chapping at the apartment door some nights, look, you need to take a wage cut, um, we can't afford you, well, if you don't want to take a cut, we'll throw you and your family out in the street and everything. Wow. Um, yeah, it was. It got a bit. It got a bit nasty. So anyway, I took a wage cut, um, and and then I think my first wage payment I got. Um, it was one was I'd given them the details from a bank to put the wages in, mm. and they're looking at me going, "What's that?" And I says, "For the wages? No, 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 no." The guy me. The guy gave me a lump of cash and three checks. Okay. And I'm like, oh, what is this? This was at the side of the pitch after a game one night, and um, the checks were dated week after week after week. Mm-hmm. So you were never ever getting your money at one point. Or, like this was like eight weeks late, and then the next payment was maybe seven weeks late. Yeah. Um, so then it started going down that road, and then they started to try to find me because they, they saw that if they find me, that they could keep that money for the club to run off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got a bit, it got a bit nasty towards the end because I used to, because I was kind of like the, the senior figure in the club. I, I, I started a kitty and you know I said to the guys look we'll do a kitty as you do in Scotland yes. and we'll put it towards the night out we'll put it towards like a meal and this that and the next thing so we had about five six hundred euros and the club then came to me and demanded that money to pay for the young players and I said but that's the players money yeah and they demanded it and threatened me again with um with getting that money so after that I decided to come home you know and it kind of killed the dream for me because yeah. it was the family lived out there great lifestyle yeah um, you know the boys used to call me mm-hmm. yeah so no it was absolutely class absolutely brilliant yeah let's talk about the latter stages of your career because you were at for Martin for a very short period and then at Forfar to end your career I mean what were those two clubs like because obviously very different 
Yeah, for Mart- for Martin's a great club. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Arthur Cadger, who's the chairman there, he just a, he's just a football guy. He's just a genuinely nice guy. He wants to help you. He just wants that club to succeed. Yeah. And I do hope one day they do win the Women League because that, that's his, that's his always been his aim and target. He yeah. looked after me just tremendously well. The club runs great. Um, Pearl Patterson, he came in. He was the manager there. Just... <laughs> Well, used to turn up at ten to three for a game. Yeah, I've got. There's your team on the back of a fag packet. Out you go. <laughs> you know, but Pearl was a good lad. He was. A, he was a nice guy. But just you know, he he, uh, he enjoyed the social side of life. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But after after Cyprus, it kind of Cyprus kind of confirmed to me that I just I just didn't have any any man or more to go yeah. full time and chase, chase the dream of. Full time contract. Well, that was my next question. What, did you realise that you'd found an end point in your time? And it sounds like you, you made that when it was yeah, Cyprus. Yeah, there's, there's a big thing about you know mental health and all this, and mental health and football and stuff. Cyprus did that to me. Um, she trying to, uh, trying to, trying to go by day by day and, and a normality and a normal life, and it's tough because yeah. when you get threatened and. You know, and what you're going through on a daily basis, and de- and the worry in sight. But that's when I just say, you know what? I have to come out of this because you're chasing the same thing every summer. Yes. You know, and and I thought I, I just I took the enjoyment of football away from me. Yeah. And it, and that's when I started looking at about my I started building up my goalkeeping academy. Yeah. Which then gave me a different focus, which yeah, which has been I didn't realise how successful that would have been. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your goalkeeping and footballing school because that is certainly something that a lot of football players, past, present, and possibly future, are looking into. Yeah, um, there was nothing ever. I, I started at pure and simply, like I said, to get a refocus away from the troubles I had inside and the mental troubles I had from the Cyprus thing. So then it gave me a, it gave me a, like a, a, a burning desire to succeed again. Yeah. Um, and and you know, in my area, I, I stay in Carnoustie, so in this and surrounding areas, there was never ever anything for kids coming through. Yeah. So I just thought, you know what? These kids are they're going to they're going to boys' clubs and they're getting stuck in the goal for ten minutes of shooting. They're getting no te- tactical work, no technical work. So then that's when I started doing that, and it, it just seemed to take off. It yes. just took off when I started, um, and that's been that's been nine years, and it just, it just went mad. Yeah. And, and it's in the last nine years, there's been thirty-eight goalies that have come through the academy into pro youth football. Yeah. Some are going to American scholarships. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about how I've talked about ex-pros that have gone into that line of work. You know, Kenny Arthur's done a little bit of goalkeeper coaching. You know, people like Kevin Thompson are doing their own stuff. Chris Boyd is doing some stuff. How important is it that ex-pros do things like that to give something back to the game? Yeah, I think it's I think it's great because at one point or another, these people were idols of kids growing up and if these kids can be taught by people that they idolised on that pitch then I think it's absolutely fantastic yeah yeah. but the people the people that maybe do you have to have that balance of you have to understand who you're working with and what age and what level that you know I sometimes I sometimes go down that level and I, I feel like I'm a 10, 12 year old kid having a laugh and yeah. joke about it again yeah. but that's what you have to do but these people these these kids or teenager, whatever, they feed off of everything that you see, you know, and and, they get, and I do it for that, and I, I've got like goalies that have come to my academy, they goalies come because they want to just have a social life. Yes. 
when I have a, like the older ones, maybe teenage years, I have a, I have a bit of crack about them about girls and girlfriends and drinking and all that type of thing. Yeah. And they love it because they can open up to me and they'll probably tell me things that they'll not tell their parents. And I love that side of it because yeah. they know I'm there if they need me. You've had a very interesting career, Derek, and do you, I get the sense there's a little bit of regret at times in some of the decisions you made and, you know, the, what might have been. Would you agree? 100%. 100%. My, my youngest one, he's eight now, and he keeps asking me every every wee while. Um, it's always been Leicester. I, I'd got the chance to go to Leicester when I was at Dundee. Right. Um, and I was just broken into the Dundee team. Um, and Brad Douglas was down there and I thought I'm playing now I don't want to go back and sit on the bench down at Leicester and oh, well, it was a hell of a contract in hindsight but listen I'm a believer things happen for a reason Yeah. and you know I've had, I feel very privileged and very honoured that I've, I've played for Dundee I've played for Aberdeen Ross County Scotland but now I've had my time it's now for other people I'm, I'm in a job now yeah. um, I work for a company called Apex Industrial Chemicals in Aberdeen and I'm out there selling chemicals, and I absolutely love it. Yeah. And it, and I'll be honest, when you come out of the game, you struggle with the the trans transition from football to not to, uh, yes. to a normal normal life. Yeah, and that was my, that was uh, my sort of next question because do you think a lot of footballers need to prepare for that journey? Yeah. A lot more and than I they do. Where, I think that's where there's a big massive gap just now, and should it has it, been for should years. Should the SFA and other bodies be doing more? Hundred percent, and I think that's where a lot of the, the mental health issues come from because you're you're in an environment where you're very pampered, you're mm. very well looked after, you're on good money. Like you think when you're in a football, you know, you're on very good money, but then when you lose all that or you finish, how do you adapt to exactly. another lifestyle? Yeah, there's too big a gap that, that, that they have to do something. I don't know what it is, but they have to do something to bridge that gap. So when you there's a transition from. A footballing world because yeah. you're in the public eye into a transition period, you know, of, of norm- normality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last question before we wrap up, there, because we're coming to the end of the podcast. Um, what is next in your journey? Is it really to make your goalkeeping school a success? What else is it for you? Yeah, it's, and I'll just I'll continue to keep trying to develop that as best as I can. Um, and I would love to, you know, I love, like I said to you, I love the job I'm doing with AIC and I love selling and it gives me a good balance between that and my coaching. Mm-hmm. And if I continue doing that, and if I can continue to be successful and I continue to watch my kids grow up and be successful in whatever they want to do, then that's me. I'm good with that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I really wish you all the best. And I've, I really enjoyed our discussion, Derek. Thanks for being a I'll guest be on the Campbell's Fugles podcast. Top man, thank you. No worries. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Campbell's Footballs. I hope this podcast was just what the doctor ordered. If you want to listen to previous shows or look out for future shows, follow Campbell's Footballs on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to other podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Campbell's Footballs. Search for me, StatoG91, on Instagram or other social media channels. But until then, until next time... I hope you enjoyed the crack and enjoy Campbell's footballs. What a dangerous night.